Um, Today's Bible reading is taken from 1 Corinthians um, 15, verses 1 to 8. Um, And in this church Bible, it's pages 1156. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Thanks. Well, do keep your Bibles uh, open at that point. Um, There are some sheets at the back for uh, the younger folk who are in with us uh, and some pens as well. If you need a Bible, grab a Bible. It'd be really helpful to follow along. What I'm going to say this morning is a big question and it all comes uh, from God's Word, the Bible. Uh, Let me pray as we consider these words mean. Father God, we do thank you so much that that you you put before us uh, issues of life and death that you sent Jesus, we might have life. We thank you that you've given us your word, the Bible, that we might understand some of these things, even though they are great mysteries. We ask you to help our minds and our hearts bend towards your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said before, it's, um, it's a really important question, isn't it? Is there an afterlife? Because everything hangs on the answer. Everything depends on the answer to that one question. Uh, Once it does seem a bit of a nonsense in today's society, why would you even ask it? And yet, death makes us think about the question. Of course it does. Death makes us think about the question. And it is an important question to get answered. And the bit of the Bible which had read to us, that says it's important as well. It talks about issues of death and life and life after death. It says the resurrection, that Christ rose from the dead. Not to come back to this life, or they did for a few weeks, but then to go to that other existence. And it pins all of the afterlife, thinking about all of life after this one, on that event, the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus in the first place, and the resurrection of us. And so crucial is it that Paul can say, look, if the resurrection is not true, then everyone who believes in Jesus, who follows Jesus, is a poor deluded fool. Christianity which touts there's a a better way to live now, a nice moral framework for us to follow, but has no hope for the life to come, is wrong and cruel. Have a look with me at that page, page 1156, if you closed the Bibles earlier, 1 Corinthians 15. Have a look at the right-hand column in verse 19 there. We didn't have read to us, but it's important to hear. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, he says, we are of all people to be most pitied. Of all people, we're to be most pitied if it's not true. Following Christ is not just useless, it's actually wrong. 
Without the resurrection, we aren't well-meaning uh, but sincere people. We are to be pitied above everything else. And that means we are, if we call ourselves Christians, we are to examine the foundation of our faith, the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus really closely. Uh, we used to live in a, in a house um, in a different town um, where, um, where we thought about expanding. Could we have more living room? We looked at the basement and we had some guy come around who told us that we had both, I think, uh, you know, rising damp and dry rot. I'm not sure that happens. Uh, but anyway, I basically said, look, there's no way you can do anything down here. Uh, years later, in a fit of nostalgia, we kind of, you know, Googled where we used to live and uh, found it had been up for sale. And of course, when you put a house up for sale, you put photos up. And there were photos of the basement including a lovely lounge and a cinema room they managed to build down there. What we thought were slightly dodgy foundations we couldn't use turned out to be really quite solid and magnificent, a real opportunity. But we missed out. And the Apostle Paul's writing this letter to Christians in Corinth. He's aware that quite a few people have problems with the resurrection. So look with me at verse 12 on the left-hand side there, just underneath where it says the resurrection of the dead. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, he says, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? There are definitely people in the church questioning or even denying the resurrection. And that makes these verses even more helpful to look at because he's addressing skeptics. And maybe that's you this morning. So how can we know about the afterlife? Well, the Bible tells us look at the fact of Jesus' resurrection. We can look at the fact of Jesus' resurrection I've been trying to book a, a hotel uh, for a night near an airport for our summer holidays, and it's quite difficult. You, you put your search in, and a whole pages of hotels come up, and they all look fantastic, got great photos, they promise great facilities, the language is all there, the nice logos, etc. Um, but you do fear as you book, don't you? you? Before you click, you want to know. It, it says there's a great swimming pool and a free breakfast to be had. But you're concerned when you get there, it'll be a glorified puddle and a stale croissant. How do you know ahead of time? And then you start looking at the reviews. How many stars? How many people have given it four stars out of five? How many have given it five out of five? You value the opinions of those who have been there and experienced it firsthand and can tell you something about it. Well, if someone went to the afterlife and returned, if you were sure that they had, you would really value their Yelp review, wouldn't you? And Paul says very calmly and intelligently here that, that Jesus died and rose to life. Look with me at verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. He said, for the very first time I spoke to you and encouraged you to believe in Jesus, I was clear, Jesus died. He had a proper burial, he was properly dead, and finished with his life, and he raised himself up again, all in line with what God promised in the Bible, that, that phrase, according to the scriptures. Now, I'm aware the idea of death not being final is scientifically nonsense, uh, and in Paul's day, that was an ancient culture, but it wasn't a stupid one. They knew that as well. And if you came up to me after the service and said, actually, Andy, I, I, I was dead for a week once, um, I don't think I believe you. No offense. Uh, or maybe I think you're referring to that period between Christmas and New Year, which is a bit funny for all of us. But if you insisted that you had been dead for a week, I, I've got to say I'd be highly sceptical. I would look at every other possible explanation for you saying that until I had to consider it was true. I would want a veritable Everest, a mountain of evidence, before I even began to think that what you said is true. 
It just doesn't happen. And Paul knows that. He knows he's speaking to skeptical, but he lays it out as a historical and verifiable fact. So verse 5, what happened after he was raised? Well, he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters, that's his followers, at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep, some have died. And then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, if you don't think something's true, you don't say, please feel free to take witness statements from 500 people. But that's what he's saying here, isn't it? Look closely, it's no work of fiction. It's not a, a nice idea to grow out of control through wishful thinking. You know, oh, we really miss Jesus. I feel almost like he's still with us. I can still hear his words ringing around my head. And that idea kind of grow and grow and grow. And people say, oh, it's like he's here with us. It's almost like he's back with us. And that kind of got out of control. And eventually people sort of start talking about his being raised from the dead. Could it be that kind of wishful thinking? The ultimate work of fan fiction? No, Paul says. It's an event that happened. A dead person came back from the dead. If you'd been there, he said, you would have seen it too. Here's one instance recorded for us in Luke's Gospel. Uh, Luke 24. When Jesus appears amongst his disciples, first of all, uh, this, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. That's the first explanation. They weren't expecting this. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. That's how he died on a cross. You could see the nail marks. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. I'm physically here. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still do not believe it because of joy and amazement, yet said something being almost too good to be true, I can't believe it. It's wonderful. He asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it in their presence. This is no Obi-Wan Kenobi Star Wars hologram, is it? And it's not an overwhelming episode of grief. It's a description of reality, a real person standing before them. As I said, I don't think dead people do come back to life. But the same writer of this letter says in Acts 26 verse 8, Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? If, If Jesus raised to life, it must be an act of a God who can break the laws of nature that we cannot possibly break. It is possible if God's at work, isn't it? So we weren't there, but even today you could explore um, the historical event of Jesus' resurrection. You can answer that question, what on earth happened? What what took this carpenter itinerant preacher from a backwater in the backwater of an empire uh, to cause an explosion of belief that spread throughout the entire known world of people who are willing to be ostracized from their family and cut off from society and put in prison and even face death? just to believe in him what happened because that did happen what caused it you've got a bible there in front of you i hope you've got one at home if you don't have one at home we'd be delighted to give you one and there are other sources outside the bible too that might be relevant i can point you in their direction but do explore do ask the question whether you're new to this or not don't depend on other people Uh, don't depend on some expert you think I don't depend on democracy either. Because truth is not decided by an expert telling you it. 
And maybe it's, you've been in church for a long time, maybe many, many years, and you remember your youth group leader talking about how secure this is. Maybe someone from the pulpit here saying, yes, Jesus definitely did rise from the dead, but you've never actually looked for yourself. What is the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? It's a massive claim. Well, you need to look. Maybe you're in church this morning for the first time, or you've just come for this question, and you're thinking about it, but, um, but actually, just because some bloke on the telly doesn't believe it, well, just because someone says out there, oh, it can't possibly have happened. Well, actually, what about you? Have you looked at the evidence? Not some documentary on TV. Look for yourself. And truth isn't a democracy, is it? Uh, you're surrounded by people in church who believe this week in, week out. That's great. Really encouraging. Do encourage each other with that. But don't depend on them doing the hard work and not you. It's no more true because lots of people believe it than if only a few people believe it. And likewise, just because your family doesn't believe it, your friends don't believe it, your colleagues don't believe it at work, doesn't mean it's not true. You need to look for yourself. Jesus' resurrection is either the greatest bit of fake news or it's the greatest bit of amazing news. You must look for yourself. So, how do we know there's an afterlife? Well, the Bible's going to point us to Jesus' resurrection and say, there it is, there's the evidence, there's what's going on. Have a look. And because it says there is an afterlife, of course, that whole flood of questions appear. I can't possibly answer them all. Uh, but the key one is, where will I go after this life? And not just me, but of course those I love. Where does everyone go when we die? And we are, of course, desperate because I love one for our loved ones who have died to still be with us. Death is a horrible thing. And to face it, to experience it, to be cut off by it from other people, to lose them and their, their friendship, their, who they are, is a horrible experience. I'm very sorry that's been your experience recently. I, I take less funerals these days, uh, being a chaplain rather than in parish, but often the conversation around the service people would say something like this um, I still talk to them I feel they're just, they're just beside me I have that poem read out in the, in the service about being just in the next room or they'd say to a friend who's grieving you know, I'm sure they're looking down on you and they're really proud there is a really strong drive it isn't there very strong instinctive drive we're desperate for those people to still be with us somehow in some way we're desperate to know that they're okay wherever they are. And we're desperate for ourselves to be okay as well. Well, acknowledging that really strong urge, let's just stop and say, what does the Bible tell us? Well, two clear things. Uh, it tells us, firstly, there is a, a wonderful eternal home with the God of all goodness. There's a wonderful eternal home for us. It's not the clouds and harp of the, the cartoons, but a genuinely new world. I'm going to read a little bit from Revelation 21. It says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The old life's gone. This is the afterlife. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. Because the old order has passed away. 
the God who made your life and this universe and my life too will make all things new. He'll live with his people face to face. No sense of rejection or distance or ignoring. And everything there is good and perfect because he is good and perfect and is fully there with us. There's no backache. There's no heartache. There's no boredom or loneliness. There's no separation, desperation, or frustration. And there's no death. Because God is with us. It's an amazing new creation. And God says his people will be there with him. In new bodies, the last half of this chapter 1 Corinthians 15 talks about what that might be like in terms of bodies. And doesn't say... Uh, all the details just says our new uh, bodies there will be uh, like our old ones in some way, in the same way that a, a tree is like the seed you planted to make it. It's sort of connected, but somehow so much better. Glorious and imperishable, it says there. People won't get married in heaven. Marriage will somehow have served its purpose by pointing us towards that wonderful, intimate relationship between God and his people. And there'll be perfect justice as we look back over all of history, every decision God has made when seen with his arm around us will give us cause for praise rather than pause for thought. Uh, I'll be absolutely honest here. Every image I have of this eternal home, this heaven, it's a shortcut, uh, uh, when I compare it to all the bits and pieces in the Bible, I know my picture of it is inadequate. It's just a bit too small. But can I say, whatever picture you have of heaven, it must stem from being in God's presence because all the pictures in the Bible that commend this wonderful new creation to us uh, comes from God being there. And if you don't know God, then that prospect will seem perhaps a little bit weird and a bit ordinary. But if you do know this God, then you'll better get really excited about the prospect of a new and eternal life with him. Right at the end of that chapter in Revelation, it says, Nothing bad, not even the least bit of anything impure or anyone impure can get in there. And whenever I read that, I, I pull up a little bit, pull up short. It makes me think, genuinely, how could I be qualified for here? When I see how wonderful it is, I do instinctively think, I'm not sure I deserve that. And that brings us to the second thing the Bible has to say about life after this one. There is also an eternal justice from God. An eternal justice from God. There are consequences to the ways we live now, towards each other and towards God. And Jesus says this in Mark chapter 9. I won't read the whole thing through, but if your hand, if your foot, if your eye causes you to stumble, well, it's better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye, one hand, one foot, than to be thrown into hell, it says, where... The worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is not quenched. Really strong words, aren't they? Do everything you can to avoid God's eternal justice. Uh, the climber Aaron Rolson knows a little bit about that. He was the, um, the subject of the film, 127 Hours. He said the film was very close, very, very close to his actual experience. Uh, he was climbing uh, and exploring, and he fell down a narrow canyon, and his arm got trapped by a rock. Uh, if you've seen the film, you, you know more than I do. I'm a little bit squeamish. It's on my list, but I don't really want to watch it. Uh, he, he knew he was trapped. He knew no one would come to help him. He knew he would die where he was. 
unless he could get his arm out from that rock. And for all that time, he tried to cut his own arm off, knowing it was the only way to save his life. Eventually he did and made his way to help. So not a film for the squeamish. Well, Jesus says hell, God's eternal justice, is to be avoided at all costs, even if it's an arm or a leg or an eye. Whatever causes you to stumble before God, so you deserve his eternal justice, he says, cut it off. And what I find really worrying about that description in verse 48, at the end there, is, I can go back one, is I don't think it's scaremongering. The worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is not quenched. I think it's a bit like, you know, if you're a parent and you've got a sort of two or three-year-old, they're wandering around the place now, they're in the kitchen, and they reach for the stove. And somehow you've got to explain to them in ways that they can understand the horror of them putting their hand on a stove that's on. And they won't understand. So you have to kind of stoop with the language, don't you? you know, really big owls. It really hurt. Big, big tears. That doesn't cover the right description of it, does it? But that's all they can understand. The literal worms, literal fire? Maybe. Maybe. But I think my best imagination of worms or fire is inadequate. And honestly, I think I'm slightly more scared that God's stooping down to try and explain to me in simple terms I can understand what it would be like to be under his complete justice rather than his love and his mercy. Unfortunately, the thing that stops us from honoring God and loving and obeying him the way we should do is us. I can't cut off me, can I? And I do reject and I ignore this amazing God who's given me everything I have, given my very life. And what happens when I die? And he calls me to account. He says, look, Andy, I gave you life. I gave you a brain and a heart. I think they work most of the time. I gave you opportunities. I gave you words and actions and time and money. What did you do with them? I made you for a relationship with me. I made you to honor me in absolutely everything you do. How'd that go? That scares me. That would scare me. So where will I go after this life? Once well, an eternal home with God, the Bible says, or an eternal justice from God. And how can we be sure? Well, we can be sure because actually there was a need for Jesus to die. A need for Jesus to die. Look back in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, Paul says, I passed on to you as of first importance. Here is all the stuff you need to know, he says, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That Jesus, the, the Son of God, volunteered to die on a cross for our sin, our wrongdoing, our failure to honor God, our ways in which we rightly earn his justice. That sinless, perfect Son of God died to sort it out. And the Bible describes that an eternity of God's justice and anger at sin being poured out on Jesus as he was nailed to the wood that first Good Friday. In those few hours, he was treating Jesus, his own son, like he should treat human beings for eternity. And Jesus dying on the cross shows us just how serious his love is, that he is willing to step in instead. It is effective, and it is the only thing that is. 
Can you imagine being willing if you had two choices uh, in a situation, one of which was uh, the death of your child, and the other which didn't involve the death of your child? Can you ever imagine choosing the first? You'd never do it. And if you had to, for whatever reason, it would be because you knew it was the only thing that would do the deal. Well, if God says the way of dealing with sin is the death of my son, he'd be sure of two things. There was no other alternative, and that it worked. He wouldn't do it if he knew it didn't. If, sin, if dealing with sin just required us to live better lives, to be nicer people, I think God would have gone with that. It's just a bit more mindfulness or meditation or, or anything else you can think of. Prayer, whatever it be, he would have gone with that. But he went with the death of his son. It's the only way we can be right with him. On my own, I know I'm qualified for eternal justice. But when I turn to Jesus and say, can the sin you died for be my sin? Then he qualifies me for that wonderful eternal home. He says, come home to our dad. Shows us the length God is willing to go to that we might go home with him after this life I said before uh, that our society doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about these things uh, and that's true the average person I suspect spends more time on uh, their mortgage uh, their banking, uh, making a will etc the admin of this life than they ever do about the admin of the life afterwards and given, as Sam helpfully illustrated at the beginning the length of each the consequences of each it seems a bit silly let me encourage you today to take time, take the time to deal with God. It may be you need to ask God questions. Maybe say, God, can the sin that Jesus died for, can that be my sin, please? And you want to do that today. Or I'll be down the front, there'll be other people who want to pray with you uh, and help you. If today's raised issues for you about death and the afterlife, uh, that you're worried for yourself or for other people, please do come and have a conversation with us afterwards as well. I don't have all the answers, but I will point you to as many as I can find in God's word and the comfort that he has there as well but let me finish uh, by praying to this great God who provided Jesus Father death is um, death is horrible it's an ugly thing and the fact that we live in a world with it uh, makes this life sometimes seem very, very bleak. Father, we, we do thank you that you are clear in your word about what this life is about and that there is an afterlife. You've made an eternal home for us with you, that there is a way in through Jesus. Father, we ask we would not take these things lightly, but reverently with due thanks and giving right awe to you that you would be a God who would do all these things for us we do thank you that you're our God of justice in every way we also ask Father we might be those who through your son uh, escape that that he takes our place that we might take his with you in eternity we ask this in Jesus name Amen